I've decided that I'm going to use really high-tech uh, display this morning to help you understand what's going on. And so I think, uh-oh, I think this is the east for you, right? This is the west and this is the east. Is that right? Okay, good. So in January 587, that's how we should take the first verse. So in January 587, the Lord calls Ezekiel to turn his gaze toward Egypt in verse two. And this begins seven oracles that Ezekiel uh, levels against Egypt. And it's surprising because Egypt actually occupies more of Ezekiel's time than any other country. Why, when Babylon, why, when Babylon threatened Judah and Jerusalem, would Ezekiel spend so much time focusing on Egypt? Why would Egypt and not Babylon be the overriding concern of Ezekiel? The answer is straightforward. Judah hoped not in the Lord, but in Pharaoh. Jerusalem looked not to the God of heaven, but to Egypt. Now, Assyria had been the global power at the time uh, of a previous generation. And Assyria, if you remember, conquered the northern kingdom and deported those tribes. Now, though, Assyria really is a kind of lame and uh, unimpressive um, compared to its former glory. And Babylon is ascendant. Babylon is ascendant. And so, in the face of this upstart empire, Assyria and Egypt, so Assyria and Egypt ally together against Babylon as a way of trying to stop the threat. Tiny Judah, tiny Judah was at the epicenter of the crossroads of all of these comings and goings. So when Pharaoh Necho II, when he in 605 BC is making his way to Carchemish to do battle with the Babylonians, aided by the Assyrians, he actually wants to pass through Judah and King Josiah tells him no. It did not go well for King Josiah of Judah when he said that, as 2 Kings 23-29 records. In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him. So Egypt comes through, is victorious over Judah, gets together with Assyria to fight Babylon. How does it go? Well, at the Battle of Carchemish in 605 BC, then Commander-in-Chief Nebuchadnezzar absolutely crushes this combined army. His father, Nebuchadnezzar's father, also conveniently dies shortly after this dramatic victory. So Nebuchadnezzar in 605 is not just this great military uh, conqueror, he also becomes king. And so that's 605. Then in 601, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, 
wants to what? Finish the job, right? So in 601, he begins marching towards Egypt, but the adventure ends in a stalemate. So the, the, uh, there are losses on both sides, but Babylon doesn't com- conquer the Egyptians. Now this gives Josiah's son, who was killed by Pharaoh, this gives Josiah's son Jehoiakim the opportunity, so he thinks, to shake off the Babylonians, right? They maraud through Judah, but then they're not, they can't conquer Egypt. And so he thinks, Jehoiakim thinks, you know, I can get rid of these Babylonians. Big mistake. Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem and he takes it. Jehoiakim died in the siege. He was replaced by his son, Jeconiah, who was deported to Babylon. And then Zedekiah, Nebuchadnezzar put Zedekiah, his uncle, as king in Jerusalem. So it's a lot of moving pieces, but I think it's important because Judah is actually under Babylonian control. But after the death of Pharaoh Necho II, guess what? Jerusalem starts thinking again, you know, we should shake off these Babylonians. And in fact, the pharaohs of Egypt, two successive pharaohs were encouraging them, hey, look, you've got to get rid of these Babylonians. And so Judah, along with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and also the king of Tyre, tell, they stop paying tribute to the Babylonians you know, we're not, we're not going to give you the money that we're supposed to give you, the protection money that we're supposed to give you. Well, what's the result? Nebuchadnezzar decides that Jerusalem must become a parking lot. Jerusalem, all, these pesky Jerusalem kings only cause trouble. They only cause difficulty. So, Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem in 587, and as you know, it will be destroyed completely. So in, in Ezekiel 29, verse 1, we're at January 587. Nebuchadnezzar has started besieging Jerusalem, but he has yet to take the city. That's the context for us this morning. And Ezekiel's message to Judah is straightforward. Do not hope in Egypt. Egypt cannot rescue you. In fact, Egypt cannot rescue herself. So I titled this sermon, Two Questions About Your Heart, because I want us to think about uh, two illustrations that Ezekiel uses about Egypt. And so the two questions are, first, is your delight blasphemy? And second, is your dependence idolatry? So first, is your delight blasphemy? That's the question asked of Egypt, and the answer is yes. In verse 2, Ezekiel is told to speak against Pharaoh, who's addressed directly in verse 3, because Pharaoh delights in himself in a blasphemous way. 
So, verse 3. So, what, what does the Lord say? Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams. So, this could be some kind of dragon, or I take it to be a, uh, an, a massive Nile crocodile. So, this massive Nile crocodile, what's the problem? Well, Pharaoh says, my Nile is my own. My Nile is my own, which, you know, in some ways, that's true. Um, a crocodile swimming around the Nile is left to himself, right? He owns the space that he's in. But then, there's, so there's a delight there, but then there's a blasphemy. I made it for myself. My Nile is my own. I made it for myself. No, Egypt did not make the Nile. Instead, the Nile made Egypt. 98%, 98% of modern day Egypt lives on 3% of Egyptian land. If Egypt didn't have the Nile, it would just be desert. And this crocodile, Pharaoh, this crocodile, strutting about, turns his delight into blasphemy. Now, crocodiles are fierce. They're terrifying. Um, I had the, the pleasure of reading about Gustav, a Nile crocodile who lives in Burundi. Um, he weighs over 2,000 pounds. So he's the size of, he's the weight of a small car. And he's over 18 feet long. So he's Chevy Suburban long. But if you have a standard 20-foot garage, Gustav can fit in your garage. But you may not want him there. Gustav is actually so large, he can't hunt what normal crocodiles can hunt. So he, he, he hunts a hippopotamus here, an African buffalo there, and of course, humans. He has killed as many as 300 humans. Now, if Gustav is so bad, why don't we try to kill him? Well, people have tried. He's got three large bullet holes in his body, a significant wound to his right shoulder blade, but, and there are rumors that Gustav has died, but who wants to go around? Like, do you want to swim around some lake looking for Gustav? Seeing whether or not he's uh, died? And Pharaoh swaggers like a big Nile crocodile. He swaggers. He fought Nebuchadnezzar to a draw instead of being crushed. Right? The Nile's mine, and I made it. And the Lord says, No. The Lord says, I'm going crocodile hunting. That's what we see in verse four. I will put hooks in your jaws. I will pull you out of the Nile so quickly that the fish will actually stick to your scales. I will draw you up out of the midst with a bizarre coat of fish. And then verse five I will cast you out into the wilderness. You shall fall on the open field. The fearsome ruler 
of the Nile will become, verse 5, food for the beasts of the earth and the birds of the heavens. God always acts with a purpose. And here he makes his purpose clear. Verse 6, then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. Egypt did not make, Pharaoh did not make the longest river in the world. God did. And not Ra or Isis, two of the many false Egyptian gods, but the one true God, the Lord. We ought to be zealous for the glory of the Lord and never let our delight in the things that he has made become idols to us, become occasions for blasphemy when we say that we have done something when it's the Lord himself who's done it. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached this passage in the 1950s. He said, The essence of sin does not lie in the particular acts or actions of which you and I and others may be guilty. Now that's where we go wrong. We think of sin in terms of particular sins, and that's why respectable people do not think they're sinners. They utterly fail to realize that the essence of sin is not to glorify God. And anybody who does not glorify God is guilty of sin of the foulest kind. Even though you may never have got drunk, though you may never be guilty of adultery, if you live for yourself and your own glory, you are as desperate a sinner as those other people whom you regard as sinners. Covenant Church, if we attribute to someone else, even ourselves, the glory and honor due to God alone, then we blaspheme God. We speak lies about him. Do we talk about politics or sports or hobbies? Do we talk about our children or our grandchildren in a way that glorifies them and not the God who made them? We must be careful. And then there's this declaration starting in the second sentence of verse 9. A proclamation against Egypt for its blasphemy. The Lord will crush Egypt from Migdal in the north to Cyrene in the south. And even as far as Cush, that is modern Ethiopia. From Bella Vista to El Dorado. From Fort Smith to West Memphis. Right? The, the, uh, the destruction will be complete. And why? Because the Lord will not let his people turn to Egypt for help. He wants to so devastate Egypt that his people will not be tempted to turn to Egypt for help. So they will be a lowly kingdom. So the Lord will restore them, but they will be a lowly kingdom kingdom, a little nation. And in fact, Egypt's glory is in its past. 
If you go to Egypt, you, you go to look at ancient things, not, not uh, grand contemporary things. So is your delight blasphemy? That's our first question. And we saw that for Egypt, the answer was yes. Now, the second question is, is your dependence idolatry? Now, here, I think that the, the first question is addressed to Egypt, but the second question is about Egypt. We see this in verse 6. The question is for the house of Israel, who looked to Egypt for help. Is your dependence idolatry? So... The uh, illustration here, so it was the, the crocodile, but now the illustration here is of a staff of reed. Reeds in the Nile easily break, so they are inadequate for support. So they, they, uh, they may look like they could support your weight, but they, they don't. I think of our uh, like pampas grass or maiden grass. You don't, you don't want to fall on that. And so here... It actually, the thing which was the hoped for support actually became a weapon. So God's people leaned on Egypt and, and it broke and tore all their shoulders, verse 7. It made their loins shake. And in response to the crocodile, God goes hunting. In response to the reed, the staff of reed, God goes threshing. He pulls out his sword, verse 8, I will bring a sword upon you and will cut you off from and will cut off from you man and beast. And what's the result? You know the theme, Egypt will be a desolation. But also, verse 9, they will know that I am the Lord. God is concerned to communicate God is concerned to communicate who he is through good times and bad times. God is concerned to communicate who he is through the bad times and not just the good times. You know, if you, based on social survey data, America's God is a good time deity one who brings sunshine, but never rain, who blesses, but never curses, who builds houses in heaven, but doesn't populate hell with a single person. That's not Ezekiel's God. And it's not the God of the Bible. It's not the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when our dependence, when our dependence becomes idolatry, we will learn painfully, painfully, that the flimsy reeds upon which we've placed our lives can offer us no support and in fact will only hurt us, will only pierce us. They are insufficient to support you and help you. And in fact, they will harm you. So to what have you been turning for your emotional support? 
excellent grades, a big bonus at work, the ability to work with people easily or just a kind of uh, way of uh, rolling with the punches. When you speak to others about your life, do you look to glorify the Lord or is your focus on yourself? Each staff of Reed has is something in common with every other staff of Reed, and that is it will break. It will break. You will be pierced by what you worship when what you worship is not the one true God. And your painful downfall is actually an act of God's mercy. If you wake up from yourself and cry out to the Lord and say, have mercy upon me. So this week, let the crocodile and the staff of reed uh, be with you. Think, think upon those things this week. What is, what are you leaning on when you should be leaning on the Lord? And what are you boasting in when you should be boasting in the Lord? Now, the desolation of Egypt is vast. And Ezekiel has a declaration beginning in verse 17 about it. This prophecy is many years after the prophecy against Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, besieged Tyre for 13 years. Uh, this is why the, uh, the men go bald and their shoulders are rubbed bare. Um, presumably it's because they were actually hauling stones from uh, building the siege works. But it could be just an indication that it took so long, like with the balding, that it was just part of the aging process, that the, the men grew old as they were trying to capture Tyre. They wore themselves out. But Tyre had little to offer them. Perhaps they shipped their goods away. Or they, it was such a long siege that they depleted all their goods. But Nebuchadnezzar's hoped-for gain from Tyre did not materialize. Nebuchadnezzar crushed Tyre, but had little to show for it. Now, surprisingly, if you look at verse 20, surprisingly, Neb, Neb, the Lord says about Nebuchadnezzar that he, they worked for me. They worked for me that that Nebuchadnezzar was actually doing the Lord's work. And so because Nebuchadnezzar did the Lord's work in besieging Tyre, he's got to have some payment. And God determines that the payment is Egypt. The payment is Egypt. So verse 19, the verse before 20, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, shall carry off its wealth and despoil it and plunder it and it shall be the wages for his army. Egypt will be destroyed, and Babylon will receive wages for doing God's work. You know, we live in 
uh, difficult times with inflation and uh, interest rates, unhappiness all around us. And those are just the problems that we face here at home. There's a long list of nations that despise us. And we need to remember that the Lord takes, that, that he looks at all the nations, right? He, he, looks, he looks at all the nations. So he, he looks to Judah, but he looks to Tyre. He looks to Babylon. He looks to Egypt. And it is not inconceivable that the Lord would allow the United States to suffer. I don't, I'm a patriotic American, so I don't like saying this, but I think it does arise from the text. It's not unthinkable that the Lord would cause, allow some kind of national humiliation for the United States to chasten us, to wake us from ourselves. It's not pleasant to say, but Notice how the Lord surveys the landscape and he is very careful in looking at each place, Tyre, Egypt. He names the cities in Egypt. And so we ought to pray and we ought to repent. So there is at the very end a curious verse Verse 21. And it suggests that the destruction of Egypt, that crocodile in the Nile, that flimsy staff of reed, that the destruction of Egypt will somehow be an occasion for the uh, a blessing for the Lord's people. Look at verse 21. On that day, I will cause a horn to spring up for the house of Israel, and I will open your lips among them, then they will know that I am the Lord. Here at the end of the chapter, we see God's redemptive, restorative purpose for his people. A horn will spring up, a prophet will speak, and God's people will know the Lord. Now, who is the horn that springs up? Ezekiel doesn't tell us. It could be Ezekiel. But we also know that the prophet Daniel is in Babylon. And Daniel chapter 6 verse 3 says that Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And we also know that the exiled king of Judah is there too. And in the closing verses of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 52, we learn that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, is released from prison and allowed to eat from the king's table. Even in exile, God promotes his people. Even in dark times, God brings blessing. He brings light. And we also, we we know that Ezekiel speaks this is really kind of fun. In chapter 25 is when Ezekiel begins prophesying against the other nations or surrounding nations. 
the Lord tells him right before he begins this prophecy, his prophesying against the other nations in Ezekiel 25. The Lord tells him in Ezekiel 24, 27, that the day will come when Ezekiel will, shall speak and be no longer mute, which suggests what? That he's not speaking. And we know in Ezekiel chapter 33, so we're in chapter 29, we know in chapter 33, verse 22, that Ezekiel will write, the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he'd opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. Ezekiel speaks. Ezekiel gains increasing credibility among his compatriots as what he has communicated about the future comes true. It, in fact, comes to pass. And Ezekiel speaks now because thousands of years after he lived and prophesied, we study and we learn. The Bible speaks today. God, the Holy Spirit, works in our hearts so that we can read texts from 2,500, 2,600 years ago and written in a different language, translated into English or, uh, I mean, a host of languages, and, and we, our hearts can be moved. That's how powerful the Lord is. But our blasphemous delights and our idolatrous dependencies, the uh, crocodiles in our hearts and the staffs of reed upon which we lean, keep us from listening to the Lord. So repent, turn away from speaking lies about God and boasting in your own strength and turn away from leaning upon anything but the one true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your name. You are good to your people. Lord, what a comfort to us that Ezekiel exiled in Babylon could receive words from you. And so too we, pilgrims in a strange country longing for heaven, can receive words from you. We pray that you would make us your people that you would cause us to turn away from blasphemous delights and idolatrous dependencies and trust in you alone, the one true God. Amen.